let's just, let's just jump in today um, into our, our, our series on Philippians. Um, let's start with this. I, I know sometimes when we, cons- when we consider leaving our jobs, if you, if you have a job, some of you I know have, have, your job is to work at home with your children. Praise God for that. One of the most important things anyone could ever do. But for those of us that have jobs, um, when we're considering leaving a job, um, how often do you think uh, us leaving jobs is because of outside forces, outside influences? Right? So, like, I'm, like, I'm thinking through it this way. Um, how many of us, again, have left jobs because of an outsider? And what I mean by that is, before I was a pastor, some of you know I was in sales, I was in pharmaceutical sales, and I remember as I was doing that job, more and more and more government regulation came in, more and more and more control over managed care come in, and not only was it frustrating for me, but I could see doctors wanting, and nurse practitioners and PAs wanting to make decisions and being told, no, you can't make that decision. Like, you have to do it this way, from people who weren't doctors, who weren't nurse practitioners, who weren't PAs, and it was just getting more, the whole industry was just getting more and more more and more frustrating. And it didn't necessarily make me want to leave my job. I liked my job, but I kept, I just started thinking like, can I continue to do this forever? Because what, what I started doing, I wasn't doing anymore. Like I, I started like relationships and really I wanted to help people through the medicines that I sold, but more and more, it didn't, it didn't feel like it was about that. It was about just managing all of this stuff. Right. And so I thought, can I continue to do this for a lot longer? So that was an outside force that was pushing on me. But, you know, for some of us, we're leaving our jobs because of family things, family issues, all kinds of things from the outside that force us to leave our jobs. But do you think that's the reason that the majority of people who leave jobs leave their jobs because of outside things? I don't think so. Right? Just this week, I was talking to someone who has a boss and their, and their boss is just demeaning and they just bully people into getting their way, and they've created so much division on their team just in the last few months on a team that's not that, very, that, very, that big. Four people have left. I think four people out of seven have left in three months. And this person was considering leaving their job because like, am I gonna, even though I love this job and I love the people I work with, I'm, am I gonna get put up with just being bullied all the time? Right, so those are the, th- those are the kinds of things that people usually leave jobs for. I can't, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but have you ever heard someone say, oh, people don't leave jobs, they leave bosses. Right? Particularly for people who like their jobs. They don't leave the job, they leave bosses. And there's all, 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 all kinds of other inside forces that try to affect us, like internal politics and, and just a group of people that treat you badly or, or that you don't like or don't like you or a lack of promotion or getting a lack of what you do. We could go on and on and on with the things that happen inside jobs that cause people to want to leave. Now, why do you think most people leave churches? Do you think it's because of outside forces requiring them to leave? Like they get a job that they really love and they want to move for their job or move for family or move because they feel like there's another ministry or another church they're called to, another part of the city. Now, does that happen? Absolutely that happens. It happens all the time. It's happened at Freshwater a lot. People leaving for really amazing reasons, outside forces pulling them in another direction they need to go. But do you think that's the reason that the vast majority of people, particularly in the American church, leave the church? No, I don't think so. It's because of struggles and divisions and problems within the church that cause more people to leave, not outside forces, but inside forces. Well, if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the book of Philippians. We're calling the series Divine Humility, and we're going to point to that today, why we call it Divine Humility. And again, if you haven't been with us, the the book of Philippians is really a letter, a letter written by a guy named uh, named Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul, and he's in prison in Rome for his faith, for just living out his life for Jesus. And he's writing to this church in the city of Philippi, which is in the Greece area. He's writing to this church that he started. He was their pastor. He started this church. And so he's writing back to them to encourage them. 
And so what we saw in the last part of what, what we saw in the end of chapter one is Paul's, in, in particular in the last few weeks, was trying to encourage them in the struggle that outside forces were causing on them. They were having persecution from Romans. They were having persecution from Jews and Jewish Christians. All these people, just like Paul, had been arrested for his faith that were trying to put pressure and persecute these people. So Paul has been saying to them, listen, you need to stand firm together in the Holy Spirit. Like this suffering is not a mistake. Like God allows us to go through, through certain things because it strengthens our faith. It makes us more like Christ. So don't stand firm on your own strength. Stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit. Stand firm together and then you will be able to make it through. And so that's really where we've been. But this week, we're going to start chapter two. And in chapter two, we're going to make a transition in that. And I'm going to make another one of my bold statements. I think chapter two of Philippians, particularly the verses that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, is one of the most important passages in the New Testament. They're all important, right? They're all important. But I think this is one of the most important because it just so thoroughly lays out like that, that we exist for the glory of God. It, it, it talks about how we live for the character of Christ. It's, it's pointing us to who we are going to be as the church and how we can be united. It's just such an important passage, such a beautiful passage. And, the tr- and so in chapter two, we're going to go from chapter one to chapter two, not only into an important passage, but we're going to make this transition from Paul talking about how they need to stay united despite outside forces trying to bring them down to the, the problem of inside forces trying to bring them down. So Paul is going to call them to a different kind of unity for different reasons this week. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the next five weeks in verses 1 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2. And this week we're going to really focus in on verses 1 and 2. But listen, this 1 through 11 is a whole passage. It's a whole thought. We can't really just separate it out. So we're going to read the whole thing, we're going to see it as a whole, and then we're going to go through and we're going to really dive deeply into it and, and think about it from a biblical perspective, but also how that fits into our, how that fits into our context. So really, you can think about this as a, a kind of a five-week series in the series of Philippians. It fits in the whole. It's not really a series, but we're going to spend five weeks just on these 11 verses. And we're going to, we're going to really, just when we read it, you're going to see how it just lays this beautiful, just, just beautiful groundwork for, again, what it means to live for the glory of God, what it means to walk and reflect the character of Christ, and how we find unity in what Jesus calls his bride, what Jesus calls his church. So let's read the passage as a whole, and then we'll come back and we'll focus on verses 1 and 2. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2, if you haven't already. And let's read verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that not a beautiful passage? 
I just love the way that, the way that lays out. Um, a lot of people, we'll talk about this more in a few weeks, but a lot of people think that was an early hymn that was sung in the early church that they, that they repeated to themselves about who Christ is and how everything is for his glory. So as we've transitioned into, into this chapter, there's, there's things that we really need to talk about that we're going to want to talk about in, in this passage because it's just so incredibly important because it's, it's right at the heart of what this whole book is about. And if, as you can see, the, the thing that's the most important is that this is all about the glory of God. This is all pointing to this is about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done. It's all pointing to his divine humility. And that, that's why we call it divine humility. Because think about it. It's the humility to lay his life down, even to lay his life down on the cross. Like as we talked about before, the symbol of shame, the symbol of destruction. This is how Jesus decided to lay his life down and suffer for us so that we might be set free. So this is not just humility. This is God. I mean, think about what it means for God to have humility. It's just crazy if you think about it. Like the God of the universe with all power humbles himself for the sake of us, but that's what Jesus Christ did. God humbled himself, divine humility, so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be saved. That's what this passage really is. But this passage also lays a groundwork for how we might follow in Christ's example as individuals, but also how we might follow his example as the church. As I've said so many times before, this whole idea in our culture now that, hey, I, I know that there's a church out there, but hey, I love Jesus and me and Jesus are good. I don't need the church. It's just not true. The whole New Testament is crying out that we need each other. And this, even in the example of Christ laying down his life for his bride, for all of us, because we're his family, we need a family and we need to follow in Christ's example. So we read the, the passage as a whole. But now we're going to focus in on verses 1 and 2 because I think Paul's really kind of laying the groundwork for how we live this out, what this really means, what this means for us as individuals, but again, as the church. All right, so this passage begins with the word so. There's another word you could use instead of the word so, you could use therefore. And as you, I, I say it all the time, but I'm going to keep saying it again and again. When you see a so, it means the same thing as therefore. It means what came before is important. You got to see what the therefore is therefore. And in this case, because of what Paul said before, it's going to inform what he's about to say. And what he just said before, I think it's really talking about what he said in verses 27 through 30. And that was about what we talked about, that outside forces are going to come and they're going to try to persecute you and they're going to try to harm you. They may even try to beat you or kill you, but stand firm in your faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's even said, look at my example. Look at what God's done through my suffering. So you stand firm. Look at the testimony of my life. You stand firm together and you will be able to endure these per people that, that hate you, that want to persecute you, that want to hurt you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's where we came from. That's the so, that's the therefore. So transitioning into verse one of chapter two, when it says so, or we could, another way we could just state that, he could say in a similar way, Paul could say in a similar way, stand united inside the church too. Walk in the divine humility of Christ so that you not only can sustain, but you can endure and even grow despite not only the outside forces, but also the things that are happening, the difficult things that are happening inside the church. Because remember, I think, I think most of us agree, particularly in our context in the American church, that the thing that are driving a lot of people, most people out, out of their churches into other places away from the church or into other churches are not the outside things, it's the inside things. Now, we might think that's not the same for the Philippian church, because listen, they have, a, they have persecution, like persecution we couldn't imagine, right? People might literally kill them for their faith. And later on, that's going to happen. It's kind of leaning towards that in the Roman Empire, but later in the Roman Empire, Christians will be killed for their faith. So we're talking about very real persecution from the outside that we don't experience. 
But that doesn't mean they didn't have it on the inside and that it was a major problem. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're just going to spend a second here, but turn to Philippians chapter 4. And let's read in in verses 2 and 3. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 says this. I entreat Euodia and and, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, who's probably the pastor of this church. We don't know who the true companion is, but it's probably a pastor, one of the important leaders in the church. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Whose names are in the book of life. Now, we're going to spend way more time with that passage when we actually get there, right? But we can see from that passage that there is division in the Philippian church. These two women, whoever they are, um, are having some sort of disagreement. And by the way, the way that Paul talks about them, how they've worked with me and Clement, at least gives us the impression that they were leaders in the church, that they had done significant ministry with, in the Lord with Paul. They advanced the gospel, but, but also that they were for sure Christians, right? Their names are written in the book of life, so help them to agree. Or that word agree can also be translated, help them to have the same mind. This is a big deal. Like the reason we know this is a big deal is how often in the New Testament do people get named by name in the middle of a passage? Sometimes they get named at the very end of a book. Hey, this person and this person and this person's with me. But in the, and even through the whole New Testament, how often are people named by name? It's a big deal when names are mentioned. And Paul uses their names in the letter that he writes, help these two women whose names are written in the book of life, who I love, who have, we've done gospel ministry with, help them to agree, help them to be of the same mind, true companion, help these women. This is a very clear sign that there was some major division going on in the Philippian church that Paul had to, had to address. And it kind of informs the rest of the book for us, doesn't it? Because if you've read Philippians, and even what we're going to see today and what we're going to continue to see, a major theme of this letter is unity in the church. And Paul talks about that in pretty much all of his epistles to the churches, but this one in particular, man, he's talking about the unity needed in this church. He's, the unity that's needed in this church. And it and I want you to remember that in the context of this church, because if, if you remember, if you've been with us, this church in Philippi that Paul's writing to is a healthy church. As far as we can tell, as far as we know from the New Testament, it's the healthiest church in the New Testament. If you remember, Paul is talking about how much joy this church brings him, how much joy because they're doing so well, because he loves them so much, because things are going well. But even for hell, hear this, even for healthy churches, division comes up. Strife comes up, hurt comes up, and we have to actively seek to heal it. We have to actively seek to reconcile it. Because I think, I said this before, but I'm going to say it again. I think we act so surprised, and it feels so surprising when division comes up, even in a church that feels healthy, right? It's like this, this feeling of how could this have happened? How could there be division in our church? And by the way, I I think I want it to be a surprise, at least in some ways, right? We don't want to think that this is going to happen to us. And, and we act like, how could this have ever happened? And if, that, if division comes up, and we've had some division in our church before, we don't have to hide from it, right? Um, we want to address it, and we want to see why, and we want to learn from it, and we want to heal, and we want to grow. Yes and amen. But like, why are we surprised that things like come up like this? If in a healthy church in the New Testament, not long after Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, immediately divisions are coming up, and Paul's having to call the, the church to help two people who are very influential in the church to help heal. 
Listen, this, the fact that we have division in, the, in even healthy churches sometimes is no surprise to God. God threw a bunch of sinful people together and said, okay, here you go. And it's no surprise to him that that's sometimes going to go bad because we're not perfect. Because we are sinful people. Listen, we're here because we need healing, not because we have everything out. We're here because we have a sickness of sin that's still trying to overwhelm us and corrupt us and pull us away from holiness. So it's not surprising that this happens, even though when it does happen, it feels surprising. It feels so off. You know, listen, it is off. That's not what God wants for us, strife and division and hurt and pain. But you throw a bunch of sinful people together, it's going to happen. And so God is giving us what we need. He's, he's telling us what we need that, so that we can heal and grow. So we can heal and grow. Why are we surprised? This is how God changes us. This is how God changes us. Just as Christ forgave us despite all of our sin, despite all of our failure. Just as he reconciled us through community, we see the same. Through community, we learn how to forgive. We learn how to show grace. We, we learn how to show mercy. We learn how to heal, despite all those things, as Christ is using all those things to heal us. So to lead into this discussion of what this looks like, how we approach this, why we should approach it this way, Paul starts with some if questions. There's going to be four if questions in verse 1. And then when he says if, he's not, he's not questioning whether these things are true or not. Like it's a rhetorical way of talking, right? If you've experienced this, then this must be true is the point he's trying to make. So again, he's reminding them of what they've already experienced, not asking, not really asking if they have experienced it. Because remember, he was, is their pastor. He knows exactly what they've been through. He knows these people very well. So the first if statement in verse 1 is if there's any encouragement in Christ. This word encouragement can also be translated, encouragement's a good translation, it can be translated as comfort. If there's any comfort in Christ, which is going to be here in a second, but he's also, it can also be like exhortation, encouragement through exhortation. Exhortation means, exhortation or to exhort someone, that's a Bible word, it means to strongly encourage them in a way or passionately encourage them into what you think is, is right for them. And so Paul is saying, if, if you've ever been encouraged in the Lord, listen, if, the, if the God has ever comforted you, if God has ever called you to the truth of who he is and who you are, and you felt that encouragement, you felt that comfort, you felt that exhortation. So that's the first if. If you've ever felt that before, if you've ever experienced that, maybe in God or maybe even in God's people because they love God, if. The second if statement, if there's any comfort from love, and I think that one's pretty straightforward, Right? If you've ever known that you are loved by God, if you've ever experienced his grace through the Holy Spirit or even through God's people, you know, Paul's already said to them, he's praying that their love would abound more and more. Listen, Paul already knows that these people love really well. He talks about it in this book, that they love each other well, that they love him well. Paul's not saying you need to love, you need to be better at loving. He's saying, you, he's, he's saying this because he already knows this is a loving church and he wants their love to abound even more and more than it already has. So again, he's not asking if they've experienced love. He knows that they have. They love him really well. One of the reasons, one of the reasons he wrote this letter to this church is because they're sending things to take, and people to take care of him because they love him so much. So he's reminding them, you've experienced the love of God. You've experienced the love of God through each other. The third if statement, if there's any participation with the Spirit. I love this one. The NASB, which is another translation of the Bible, we use the ESV. The NASB uses the word fellowship. If you've ever had fellowship with the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what does it mean to have participation with 
or fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God? Well, I think Romans 8 does a far better job than I could have tried to teach you what that means or tell you from my own words. So just flip over to Romans 8. So if you've got your Bibles, from where we were in Philippians, go left. So it's going to be about 80% of the way through your Bible. Go left in your Bibles, a few books, to Acts chapter 8. Not Acts. Sorry, I just looked at Acts. If you see Acts, you've gone too far. Romans chapter 8. And again, bold statement from JT. This is a personal preference, but I also think Romans 8 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. If you want to understand the work of the Holy Spirit and who you are in Jesus Christ because of the Holy Spirit, this is one of the best chapters for that. It's just so good. It's just so good. But in Romans 8, we're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to be about five verses. And I think it's going to point us to what it means to have fellowship, participation with the Holy Spirit. Are we there? Romans 8, verse 12. I want to be there together. Your translation might look a little different. That's okay. But here's what, here's what this says. So then, brothers, or brothers and sisters, it means church people, family of God. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That means our sinful nature, the flesh, worldly desires. For if you live according to the flesh, to your sin, you will die. But if by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you put to death your sin, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And that word sons is important to understand, right? That doesn't mean guys. That doesn't mean dudes, right? God, if you're a man, you're a son of God. No, that sons is pointing back to the ancient world, in the ancient world, what it meant to be the firstborn son. The firstborn son inherited everything from the father. They kind of took over his name. They were a reflection of the image of their father. They did what their father did. And so when this says sons of God, it's talking about being a firstborn son, which is going to become really important when it starts talking about we are heirs here in a second. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as firstborn sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Man, how awesome is that? How good is that? So we, were, we are brought from death to life, spiritual death to life through the transformation by the Holy Spirit doing the work in, work in us. And then we are reminded by the Spirit of God of who we are. That we are, are the adopted children of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's why that word sons becomes so important. Firstborn sons, firstborn children. As Christ, we're fellow heirs with Christ that have been set free from fear. That's why I tell people all the time, fear is not of the Lord. You've been set free from fear. You might not believe it, but you've been set free from fear. Why? Because you've been adopted by the king of the universe who has all the power, all the glory, all the might, all the strength, all the grace and love that you'll ever need. We don't have to live in fear. We have the, we have the spirit of God in us. And then finally, it says that weird phrase that might not be as weird to you today as it would have been before, provided, all of those things are true, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Man, you read that and you don't know the, the Bible really well, that's a hard thing to hear. Like, wait, 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 I have to suffer? Yeah. As we saw the last couple weeks, sometimes God grants, by his grace, allows suffering in our lives so that we might become more like Christ. I just had this conversation with someone the other day that's kind of coming through their suffering and like, I didn't want my suffering. I wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah, welcome to the club. None of us want anything to do with our suffering, but they could see God's work in it. 
It was amazing to listen to them talk like, through this, God has shown me how good he is and how much I can trust him and that I can make it through anything. Before, I don't think I really knew I could make it through anything, but now I do. And so now, like I've been going through this stage now where before it just felt overwhelming all the time, but now I'm thanking God that we just went through this thing that we just went through. That's crazy talk in the normal world, right? But how did Jesus Christ save us? Through suffering. That's how God chose to save the world, through suffering. So when we suffer, particularly when we suffer for Christ, in Christ, we endure in Christ. God transforms us to be more like him. Do you know why? So that we might be glorified with him. The more we become more like like Christ, the more we're glorified with Christ because we are fellow heirs with him. Christ is the firstborn son of God. Probably shouldn't have said that because that gets confusing. Jesus wasn't really born, but that's how we refer to him, the firstborn son of God. And that's who we are in Christ. We are adopted in the family and we're fellow heirs with Christ. Amazing. And so the spirit, amazingly, this is who your God is. The, the spirit of God, God himself is bearing witness to you, is preaching to you, is talking to you in your heart, that, that, that peaceful, he's, t- he's telling you, you are mine, you are my child. I have adopted you. You're a fellow heir with my son. Live in the truth of who you are. That's what it means to have participation with the Spirit. How amazing is that? God saving us, redeeming us, and reminding us of who we are because of what he has done. That's participation. That's fellowship with the Spirit. What a good God we serve. And finally, the, finally if, the final if statement, if you have experienced any affection and sympathy. That word affection is a good one because Paul's already used it early in Philippians. I think it was verse 8. He said, I have the affection for Christ towards the church in Philippi. And if you were not here, this is going to sound weird. If you were, you'll be reminded of it. That word affection can kind of like literally be translated as guts or intestines. I have intestines for you. Weird, right? But do you, do you remember why? you remember what that means? The way that we might say now, like when I love this person so much, like this is kind of cheesy, but like my heart, when I see that person, my heart is just so full. When I look at my son, my heart is just so full because of my affection for him. The way that the, the Greeks would have communicated is that I love that person so much, I have such a deep affection for them, I feel it deep down inside of me. You know that feeling when you see someone you deeply care about or they're going through something and you just kind of feel it down here? That's what it's talking about. I mean, all the way in me, and deep inside of me, I have an affection for them. This is not fondness. This is not liking someone. That's that deep down affection that cries out from inside of you that you love, you love that person, that you care about that person. That's a great word, right? It's not just affection. It's, it's the deepest kind of affection. So if you've experienced any affection, and Paul's already said that he has this affection for them, and he knows they have that affection for him. If you've experienced affection or sympathy, you've experienced the sympathy of God's people or the sympathy of God, if you, if for a better word for us, maybe I don't know if it's better, sympathy is a good translation, but sympathy can also and, and is often translated as mercy. If you've ever experienced the mercy of God, and he knows that they have, because he says your partnerships, your partakers of grace, he's talking to Christians. So he knows that all of them know what they deserve, what they have done and what God has forgiven. Remember, these, these people have come from a Philippian society before they got saved. They weren't Jews. They weren't, they, they weren't church people. This is a bunch of people who worship pagan gods, who did things like they went to the temple to worship by sleeping with cult prostitutes, like going to orgies, living in drunkenness. This is the culture that they came from. They know what they've been forgiven of. And so he's reminding them, if you've ever experienced the affection 
of God or God's people, if you've ever experienced the mercy that came to you because Jesus Christ died on that cross to pay for all of that sin, and you've experienced the beauty of being redeemed and the mercy of God, if, 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 if anything of these things are true, then Paul transitions into verse two, and he says, if these things, if you've experienced any of these things, complete my joy. Complete my joy. You know, Paul has been talking about his joy for them all through this letter, hasn't he? If you're newer, Paul has talked about how, he, how much joy he has in their partnership with the gospel, right? Them defending the gospel, them sharing the gospel, them accepting the gospel together. So much joy in that. He's talked about that in all of his prayers for them. Every one of his prayers for them, his prayers are joy. He loves these people. They bring him so much joy. He's just praying with joy to God because of who they are and what they've done and their partnership together. He's, he's said, I rejoice because yes, I have suffered in prison, but through that, you've got to see the amazing work that God does through my suffering. And so he knows it's a testimony to the church so that they'll be more bold, so they'll have more courage in their suffering. And Paul says, that brings me joy. This whole letter is about his joy for them. And so Paul says here, kind of a bold statement considering he keeps talking about his joy. He's saying, complete my joy. Listen, he's basically begging them and says, listen, my, my joy hinges on this fact. It hinges on you. And how? How can Paul have this fullness of joy that hinges on them? Look, look at verse two one more time. Flip back to Philippians chapter two. If you're in Romans, flip back to Philippians. Philippians chapter two, let's read verse two one more time. He says, if, 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 and Verse one, if all these things are true, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. One mind. Listen, church, if we are full of the love of Christ, if we are moved by his sympathy, his mercy, if we're moved by his, his, his encouragement and compassion for us, if we know that we have been united by the Holy Spirit, listen, what this is trying to tell us is there is nothing that divides us. There's no wall that divides us that we can't tear down. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, that can't be torn down. Church, being of the same mind, when it says here, be of the same mind, doesn't mean that we agree on absolutely everything. Do you read that and think that's what it means? It doesn't mean... It, it, of course, it's not saying that. We're going to have differences of opinion. We're going to think about things differently. We're going to process things differently. And praise God for that. God uses our differences, our strengths, and our weaknesses to build us up to be stronger. I mean, he even did it in the New Testament. Listen, God wrote the Bible. But how did God write the, choose to write the Bible? Through men. And these guys, listen, it's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but these men are different, right? Paul and Peter are very different. James writes very different, right? We can just keep going. They're all so different. God did that on purpose. It's just like when I preach one week and then the next week TJ or Tony come up and preach, they preach differently than I. Listen, that is very good for you. Different perspectives, different ways of seeing it, connecting in different ways. Some of you might connect to their preaching more than mine. It's not good or bad. I mean, it's not bad. That's a good thing because God speaks to us in different ways, right? So Praise God, he, de he, he designed us to think differently, to come about problems differently. Listen, TJ, the way TJ and I think just could not be any different. And praise God for it because our conversations lead to a better place. Tony and I think differently. Praise God because it leads to a better place because it's more well-rounded. And that's what God does. It doesn't mean we agree on everything. What it means is we have our mindset on the same goal. We have our mindset on going in the same direction. The goal of not making much of ourselves, but living for the glory and the worship of Jesus Christ. That's what our minds are set on. 
you know, we keep talking about minds. You know, 10 times in this just four chapter book, Paul in different ways talks about having our minds set on the right thing. 10 times. He says things like have the same mind or think this way or have this mind or have one mind or even tells the women in chapter four to agree. Remember that also can be translated in the Greek, be of the same mind, to agree, be of the same mind. I think so often, particularly in Western culture, but particularly American culture, we, we think of our feelings and what we think as two separate things, as two different things, right? We, we separate those things out to think and to feel. But listen, the Bible doesn't. Do you know one of the words, not all of them, but one of the words in the New Testament that, that is a word for think can also be translated as feel? Does that seem crazy to you, the way our Western minds think? But the word think can be translated as feel in one of the Greek words for think. So the idea biblically is that if our minds are in the right place, our feelings will follow and they will also be in the right place. That our emotions don't rule over us, our minds rule over us and our minds and our feelings are in harmony. They work together. Together those two things work, make us a whole person along with our spirit, along with our soul. These are not three distinct things, mind, body, spirit. People try to look at scripture and try to separate all those things out. No, in scripture, those things are all interwoven. They all go together. Let me give you an example. If you have feelings of hate towards someone, is there anyone in your life that you really struggle with bitterness? Like you struggle with not hating them or being really bitter or every time you think of them, that, that judge in your mind starts to immediately roll about all the reasons that they're a terrible person and they've wronged you. Listen, people have wronged us. I get that. That's, that's not, there's not condemnation. I, I fight those things too, right? We got to rein those things in. But how do we rein those things in? How do we rein those things in if we have those kind of feelings? Listen, if you feel hate towards someone, that's not your feelings run amok and you have no control. It's simply that you don't have your mind set on the right things. That's what scripture teaches. That you, you're not remembering something. And this is why we come back to Jesus every single week. Because it matters every single day, all the time. If you're feeling hate and bitterness towards someone, which you know is anti-gospel, what you're not remembering is what Jesus Christ has done for you. That you're deserving of God's hate. You're deserving of God's wrath. You're deserving of those things. But what did God give you? Grace. Grace, God giving you what you don't deserve. What did he give you? Mercy. God not giving you what you do deserve. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and the best one of them all, honest, deep, true, steadfast love. No matter what, unconditional love in Jesus Christ. That is what will kill hostility in your heart. Because God has killed the hostility between you and him and given you peace forevermore. We have our minds set in the right place. Our feelings will follow. Sometimes our minds run amok. Sometimes our feelings run amok. Neither are bad. We just have to fight to keep them in the same place. As Paul says in Romans 12 too, I quote it all the time. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to your sin, to your desires, to the things of the flesh. But be transformed. How are we transformed? by the renewal of our minds. Do you think that doesn't include emotion? When Paul says things like that, you know what he's talking about we need to renew and hold on to? Truth, so that we don't let things like hate and, and lust and greed and all of these feelings that we have for things that we want or desire or don't want, our minds will set all of these things right because our minds and our feelings, they go together. They work in tandem. Your feelings are not your enemy. Your mind is not your enemy. 
That's, that's just lies from Satan. You've got to focus on the right things. Those things come together. And this becomes really important to the rest of Philippians because over and over in Philippians, it's going to talk about things like anxiety and fear and bitterness and complaining and reconciliation. And Paul's going to remind us to have our minds set on the right things again and again. And what are the things Paul is saying in this passage that we keep our minds set on that are going to keep us united? He said in verse 1, encouragement and love comfort, sympathy, affection, and through the Holy Spirit that we have been united with God by his grace and steadfast love. Be of the same mind. Think about our united goal of living for and making much of Jesus Christ. Be of the same mind. It also says that we're to be in full accord Again, I like the, all through this, I don't quote the NASB a lot. It's a great translation of the Bible. If you have that, it's a great translation. Um, but I like the words that used in this passage. The NASB says, of full accord, intent on one purpose, which is kind of going back to the first point of being of the same mind, right? Intent on one person. And I love that. I just love it. Because the intent of our lives, what? Is whether by our life or by our death, we make much of Christ. What did Paul say just a few verses ago? To live is Christ and to die is gain, that's living in full accord. If you're living for Christ and there's someone in the church that you're just really, really angry with and you can't get over it, if you're living for Christ, what are you going to do? Stay mad and then talk to other people about how they wronged you? Is, listen, we've all been there, right? Don't, don't act like you haven't been there. Don't act like, no, listen, if you're frustrated with someone, if you're angry with someone and you don't seek to live for Christ and go and talk to them about that, listen, for your own health, but listen for them to build them up in Christ. If you go in love and compassion and grace and mercy and hear me, truth, maybe hard truth, right? We're seeking that we both grow in that situation, not to tell them all about themselves. And that's, that's a loving thing to do. Staying back and being bitter and anger and resentful or just frustrated and like, I'm just kind of done with that person. They're fine. They can stay on their side of the church. I'll stay on my side of the church. No, lie, enemy. That's Satan dividing. There is no such thing as they'll stay over there and that's fine and I'll stay over here and that's fine. Lie. That's how division starts. That's how the enemy destroys churches. We are in this together intent on one pur- purpose, in full accord. And that is hard. Oh, it's hard. Oh, but it's good. It's so good, church, in full accord. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is what unites us. And then it says having the same love. Having the same love. And listen, that's not primary, primarily our love but Christ's perfect love for us. It's the great commandment, isn't it? Because we see what Jesus Christ did. Like, we are sinful, and Jesus Christ went to the symbol of shame and death to die on that cross so that he might take all of our sin and all of our guilt and wash it all away and then raise us to something new, something new capable of following him, capable of walking out of sin and fear and the fear of death. And because of that, we love our God with all our heart, with all our soul, all our mind. Again, not three separate things, all together, heart, soul, and mind. We worship him. And then out of our love for God because of his love for us, because he loved us first, as the Bible says, what do we do? We love our neighbor as ourselves. The same love. That's the love that unites us. I say not our love. Of course, that pours out through us, but that kind of love comes first because God loved us and by loving God, because 
man, if somebody's actually, we'll go back to this one again, actually wronged you in a terrible way, it's impossible. I want to say it's impossible to forgive without Jesus Christ. But not only can you forgive, but you, you can have love for that person. It doesn't mean you trust them, but you can have love for that person. That's crazy. So, having the same love. And then finally, he says, be of one mind. And in the Greek, that's a different than being of the same mind. I know it kind of sounds the same to us, but it's different. I love this because being in full accord and of one mind could also be translated like this. Be of one soul. Minding the same thing. And maybe the most literal translation that's ever been written, Young's literal translation written in like 1887. Listen, you can look it up. It's really hard to read because it's so literal. Like he doesn't even like to move around verbs. And Greek and English do not work the same, right? Tense and places, it's all different. But he tries to not even move stuff around because he wants it to be as faithful to the Greek as it can possibly be. So you read it and it'd be, if, unless you know like the word really well, it'd be really, really hard to read. But that's what it says in Young's literal translation. Be of one soul, minding the same thing. Man, I love that phrase. We are so united in Jesus Christ. We are in such harmony in our love and our worship and dedication to living not for ourselves, but for Jesus Christ and his ways is like we are one soul in the church. That's beautiful and really, really, really hard to, to truly walk in. Souls united by the Holy Spirit. It's that we are one-minded for our minds, our hearts, and even our souls all cry out for the same things together. Together. Church, we're going to dive really deeply into this next week as God shows us how this plays out practically. Right? This is going to get practical, not just kind of up here theory and theology, but it's going to get really practical. But until we do, until we get to that next week, let's keep our, our hearts and minds laser focused on what this says. Man, talk about this in your life groups. Talk about this in discipleship relationship. Pray and think over what was said this week. Because you know what? Here's the fact. We are going to have disagreements in this church. It is absolutely going to happen. You're going to think at times that other people are just flat wrong. Going to happen. It's, it's going to happen. You will think things should be done differently or said differently in your ministry, in your life group, in your discipleship relationship, as a church as a whole, those things are going to happen. And hear me, I don't want you to be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised, but we will be. Someone in this church, multiple people in this church, at some point are going to hurt you. And by the way, you're going to hurt them. Because we haven't achieved perfection yet. This is a hospital. It's a hospital for sinful people running to their physician, running to their healer. But until Jesus Christ returns and does away with all the sin and pain and suffering and death when he returns to make all things new, this is a part of it. And it's not on accident. This is how we become more like Jesus Christ who did all of those things for us as people, even his disciples, wronged him again and again. Yet he reconciled. Yet he pointed to the truth of who his father is. Yet he suffered and died on a cross so that they could be fully redeemed and they wouldn't have to carry the shame and the guilt so they could walk into who they were meant to be in him. These are the things that we have to hold on dear to. The practical things aren't the important part. They're gonna help. This is the important part and how this points who Jesus Christ is in his divine humility. So hold on to it this week, church, and then come back next week and we're gonna walk through 
very practical ways that this could play out, not just for the church, which we'll talk about the, the church, but how this can play out for our church.